Today is our third week to focus on what we refer to as the second coming of Jesus. What we've seen so far in our study of this from the scriptures is number one, that Jesus definitely is coming again. The scriptures attest to it everywhere. The second thing that we have learned is that no one knows when. Jesus himself said, no one knows the day nor the hour. And then the third thing that we have learned is that when Jesus comes, he's going to gather his people to himself, and that includes raising them from the dead so that all will meet him together and be with him forever. Fourth thing we've learned is that he will also will judge the world and he will destroy this physical universe. And then lastly, what we have talked about so far is that our task is to be ready when he comes. Over and over, Jesus said, keep awake, watch, be ready. You know, there are two categories of people who need to be sure that you're ready when Jesus comes again. The first category is people who have not yet turned to Christ. You've heard the gospel, but you've not turned from sin you haven't made that decision to repent. You haven't confessed Jesus. You haven't been baptized into him to have your sins washed away. You do not want to see him until you've done that. The second category are those who are already in Christ, the church. Now, you may hear that and wonder, but isn't the church already ready? Isn't that the whole idea? And the answer to that is not necessarily. So much of Jesus' teachings about his coming have to do not with whether or not the unbelieving world is ready, because it's not. But it has to do with whether or not his followers are ready when he comes. If you looked at the 24th and 25th chapters of Matthew, that is all, as we will see, directed to Jesus' own disciples about whether or not they will be ready when he comes. So today, the question I want to ask and I want you to think about for yourself personally is, are you ready? Collectively, I want us to ask, are we as the church ready when Jesus comes? And when he comes, what will he be looking for? What will he be seeking in his people? Let me suggest some things to you. Number one, the scripture says he'll be looking for a praying church. He'll be looking for a praying church. You heard the scripture read in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, the story about that widow and that unjust judge who didn't care anything about her, didn't care anything about God. But she just kept harassing him until finally he said, I'm going to give her justice. I'm going to give her what she's asking for. Or she's going to wear me out. And so he finally granted her request. And we don't understand that parable to be teaching that if you, if you pray and bother God enough, he'll finally give you what you're asking for. The idea is he's just the opposite of that. If even an unjust judge like that will give justice to a widow about whom he cares nothing, how much more will God give justice to those who call upon him Day and night, Jesus said. And notice how that parable begins. He told this parable that they might always pray 
and not lose heart. And not lose heart. Verse 8 says, Yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And folks, that's not a general question about the whole earth. That's a question about the church. When the Son of Man comes, is he going to find faith among us? If you want to see that, back up into Luke 17, starting at verse 20, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And as Jesus so often did when people asked the wrong question, he said, it's not coming like you think, it's already among you, and you just don't get it. It's already here, and you just don't see it. And then verse 22, he says, to the disciples, until he comes, things are going to be tough. And he says to the disciples, faithfulness is going to be required. And he says to the disciples, keep awake. And he says to the disciples, don't look back. Remember Lot's wife, he said, what happened when she looked back? And whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. And then he tells that parable about prayer. And he told this parable that they might always pray and not lose heart. And then he asked that great question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see, that parable is about a church praying for God's vindication. It's about a church praying for God's intervention. It's about a church praying for God's preservation of his people, for his blessing, so we can be faithful and survive. I know that as we hear the news and we look around us day by day, we get distressed, and we ought to. We ought to be distressed at what we see. It's an ungodly world that we're living in. What we sometimes fail to see is that that ungodly world will overwhelm us if we don't resist it. And the chief way that we resist it is through prayer. He says God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. And he's not just talking about praying over your food. He's not just talking about praying when you're at church. He's not just talking about that prayer that you remember you didn't say, that you say 30 seconds before you fall asleep. He's talking about praying day and night, he says. For God's vindication, his justice, his protection. Why? Because we desperately need it. You remember what Jesus said when he taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount? Deliver us from evil. I think the more proper translation of that is deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the schemes of Satan. Deliver us from an evil world that would overcome us. Why? Because we're locked in a life and death struggle with the prince of darkness for our souls. And if you don't see that, you're just not paying attention. If you don't see that and are not praying about that, you just don't realize what's going on. Look at the world around you and it will tell you how much you need to pray. But we're praying not just for our protection, but we're also praying for the advance of God's kingdom. Folks, the church not only needs to be praying, we need to be praying big prayers. We need to pray big prayers. What do I mean by big prayers? We need to ask God to do things that we're just not real sure he can do. 
And you say, but God can do anything. Yeah, we say that, but we don't pray that. We don't pray like we believe God can do anything. We pray safe prayers. Lord, bless us. Okay, he's going to do that. Lord, help us. Okay, he's going to do that. Pray big, specific prayers. What do you most need in your life? What does your family most need in your life? What does this church most need? What does this world most need? Pray about those things and ask God to do them. Ask God to bring them to fulfillment. Ask God to give the blessings that we need. Don't pray in a puny way and don't be generic. Pray specifically and pray in faith and see what happens. When Jesus comes, will he find faith on earth among his own people? Will we be a praying people? That's one thing he's looking for. The second thing he'll be looking for is a serving church. Serving church. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, going through verse 46, there's that parable about the sheep and the goats. It's a judgment parable. It's a judgment scene. By the way, many of Jesus' parables are judgment parables, in case you haven't noticed. The parable of the sower and the parable of the net. All of those things are judgment parables, the ones we're looking at in Matthew 24 and 25. You know, some folks think Jesus never talked about judgment. They say, oh, Jesus loved everybody, and he, and he just was peaceful and mild and meek, and he just went around Palestine telling pretty stories. There's only one reason they think that, and that's because they've never read their Bible. Because Jesus is the greatest preacher of judgment in all of Scripture. It's been estimated that approximately 25% of his teaching is about judgment. He came to proclaim the good news. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand. But along with that goes the warning, you better get in it. And you'd better be faithful to it, he said. Let me read to you that scene of the judgment. Matthew chapter 25, beginning verse 31. And put yourself in this scene. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Get that? He's going to separate people into two camps, as a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me bread. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did you notice in that scene, and we've said this before, that people are judged on what they did and did not do. They're not, they're not judged on what they believed or what they thought or what they felt or what they intended to do but on what they did. Judgment is realistic of the lives that you and I live every day. And notice the standard of judgment. We ought to rejoice at this because the standard of judgment is not the spectacular. The standard of judgment is not the amazing in helping people when they're sick and visiting those who are in, in prison. It's doing for those in need because Jesus said doing for those in need is the same as doing it for me. And if you saw Jesus hungry or thirsty or without clothing, or sick, you'd, you'd help him, wouldn't you? You know you would. You know you would. Jesus said, when you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you do it for me. What's the point that Jesus is making in that parable? The point is he wants the church to be doing, busy doing for one another and for others what they, they most need. He's not saying, I just want you to show up at church when it's convenient. He's not saying, I want you to give some money so that other people can serve. He says, I'm wanting, he says, I'm wanting you to serve. And it's the same today. If he came today, what would he find? What would he find about us? Would he find us to be the serving group that we ought to be? Would he find you individually to be a servant? Number three, when Jesus comes... He'll be looking for an evangelizing church. A church that's spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. The church that's striving to lead others to him. One of the last things he said before he left this earth in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. What a statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, he said. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you and I'll be with you till the end of the age. Those are the marching orders of the church. That is priority number one to the end of the age until he comes again. Traditionally, we have preached this. We have said the church has a threefold mission, evangelism, benevolence, helping the poor or the needy, and edification or building up the church. And I get where people are coming from in saying that, but it's just not right. We have a one-fold mission. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20 again. We have a one-fold mission. Our one-fold mission is to make disciples for Jesus Christ of all the nations. And everything else flows out of that. Everything else ties into that. Listen, if we're doing something that doesn't tie into that, we oughtn't to be doing it. 
It ought to tie in in some way to how we are spreading the good news of the kingdom, to how we are showing people the love of God in Christ so that we can bring them to the point where they become disciples of Jesus. That is our priority one. That, those are our marching orders. Go to another parable in Matthew 24 and 25. This one in chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. You probably heard this one. A man gets ready to leave. He goes, and as he goes away, he gives large sums of money to three of his servants. One of them, he gives five talents. A talent was a unit of money, and it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. He gives one of them five talents. To another one, he gives two talents. And another one, he gives one talent. Jesus says, each according to his ability. Everybody gets something. Everybody has something with which to work. Everybody has something to use. Everybody has something they're responsible for. And then when he comes back, he calls them to accounting for how they used what he left them with. The five-talent man said, I, I took your money and I invested it. I used it. And here, here's your five talents and here's five more that I made. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The guy who'd gotten the two talents, same thing. He brings the two and he says, here's two more. I used it. Multiplied your money. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll make you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then there's that one talent man. And he says, well, you know, I knew you'd be a hard man. You reap what you didn't sow. You take that which you really don't have coming. So I just took your money and I buried it in the ground. And here, you got back what's yours. He didn't lose it, but he didn't use it either. Now, folks, that parable is not about investing. And it's not how, about we, use, how we use the abilities God has given us, that word talent, the word talent does not mean a skill or ability. It does not mean that you can tap dance or stand on your head or do both at the same time. That word talent is a, a unit of money. And what he's talking about is how we use the gospel because he's talking to his disciples. He's been talking to them ever since chapter 24 and verse 3. Look it up. He's talking to the disciples, and he's talking to them, answering their questions about the end. So all those parables in chapters 24 and 25 are for them. All those parables are for the church. All those parables are asking the question, what are we going to do with what Jesus has entrusted to us? What was Jesus entrusting to the apostles as he got ready to leave the earth? It was the gospel. It was the good news of the kingdom of God. And he wanted them to understand that God was going to hold them accountable for what they did with it. Do you remember how Paul, when he writes to Timothy, talks about the gospel as a treasure? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And he says to Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been committed to you. God has left us with something precious something valuable we're to use it in his service we're to be faithful with it and we will be held accountable for how we use it the five talent man and the two talent man were each given more the one talent man lost what he had but even worse even worse listen to this 
He's cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but this raises a lot of questions for me. How does that square with salvation by grace? Does that mean that, that if we're not evangelistic enough, we go into hell instead of into heaven? I confess to you, I'm not really sure. And, and what does evangelistic enough look like? I'm not sure how all that fits together. But here's the one thing that I'm sure of from this parable. When Jesus comes, he expects to find us taking seriously the Great Commission. He expects to find a people who are seriously doing what we can to spread the word of God. He expects to find every individual follower of his telling people about Jesus, inviting them to worship, offering to study the Bible with them, giving them some literature that points them to Christ, whatever we can do. But everybody can do something. And that parable says we'd better be doing it. We'd better be doing it. He's going to be looking for that. We dare not have him come and find a distracted church. We dare not have him come and find our attention focused on everything but being, for disciples, but being disciples and making disciples. I want to share with you something very personal. It goes back to the idea of praying as well as evangelism, something that I've been praying for. And I'd like you to join me in praying for it. We need to be praying that God will show us the way to evangelize the community that we're in. We're not doing it right now. We're just not. We're making some efforts, but folks, they're not enough. They're not near enough. We're not reaching nearly the people we should be. We need to do some hard thinking and some hard praying about this and ask God to show us how is the best way, what is the most effective way that we can evangelize this whole community in which we find ourselves. That's our task. There are parts of the world that I'll never get to, you'll never get to, but we're here. We're where you live, we're where I live, we're where this building sits. There's a whole community around us. If you don't think we need to be busy evangelizing, look across the road. And look over here on the corner and look down the road and see that there are people who don't have a clue who Jesus is. Right here, literally within a stone's throw of us. We've got to figure that out. Jesus expects us to do it. We need to pray. We need to pray that he'll help us to be an evangelistic church. And then when Jesus comes... He's going to be looking for a holy church. That great text in 2 Peter 3, 1 to 10, where he refutes those skeptics who said, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the creation of the world, everything's continued just as it was. Nothing's changed. Nothing's going to change. He says, you remember the flood? You remember the fact that with God, a year is a thousand days and a thousand days is a year. God's not being slow the way we consider slowness, the way we, that's not his perspective at all. He's being merciful because he isn't willing that any should perish, but that all will, will come to repentance. And he refutes those skeptics, but then he describes the heavens passing away with a roar 
and the burning up of the heavenly bodies and the destruction of the earth. And then in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, that's the question. What sort of people will Jesus be looking for when he comes again? And then he answers his own question in lives of holiness and godliness. Holiness and godliness. He's looking for a holy and godly people, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will melt with fire and be dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What kind of people should we be? We should be holy and godly people. For some reason, holiness is something we don't talk about nearly as much as we should. You know what holiness is? Holiness is differentness. Holiness is set-apartness for the service of God. Holiness is our not-like-the-worldness. And we'd better not be like this world. You look around at the world the way that it is, we'd better not be like it. Or we are not living holy and godly lives. Listen, nobody is holy by accident. Nobody is holy by accident. If you don't set yourself deliberately to be holy, you won't be holy. If you don't make up your mind that I'm going to live the way Christ wants me to live instead of the way the world around me wants me to live and keeps trying to influence me to, to live, you will not be holy. You will not be one of the holy people that God is looking for. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see how important this is? You won't see God if you're not holy. And you have to strive for holiness. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. Do you get that? Make holiness perfect in the fear of God. The church better be living in the fear of God. Because he's coming again. He's going to be looking for holy people. And we're facing so many distractions more than ever before. So many distractions to get our focus on ungodly things and not spiritual things. And we have to resist that with everything that's in us. That's what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, when he said, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is. That's where it really lies. And if you're not being deliberately holy, then you will be overcome. And then when Jesus comes, you'll be ashamed to look him in his face. What sort of people ought we to be? Lives of holiness and godliness. When he comes, he expects to find a holy church, but he won't. Unless we're paying attention and concentrating on being a holy people. When he comes, he's looking for a praying church, a serving church, an evangelizing church, and a holy church. And we've been speaking collectively 
about the church as a whole. But here's the thing. The church won't be that way unless you and I individually are that way. A church will not be praying and serving and evangelizing and holy unless it's filled with individual Christians who are praying and serving and evangelizing and living holy lives. We won't be doing that collectively until we're doing it individually. So the question is that each of us needs to ask, am I that praying, serving, evangelizing, holy person that can make up that kind of of church. And if you're not, ask God's forgiveness for it. Ask his forgiveness for not taking seriously what he has said in his word and start taking seriously the call, the call to be what he wants us all to be. Remember that he's coming and we don't know when. And if you're not ready, either because you haven't confessed him and been been baptized into him, or because you haven't been paying attention to the life you're living as a Christian. Get that way today. And you can start as quickly as right now while we stand together and sing. Come ye sinners, poor and needy.